book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so as we began last week, the first message in chapter two, Paul wrote Timothy, his protege, his proxy, reminding him of the importance of praying, but not just praying as an individual Christian. None of us can neglect that. Praying corporately. The message from the apostle is to the church in Ephesus. And he reminds them with the word, therefore, which is the hinge that connects chapter two to chapter one. And there was a problem with spiritual liars coming into the church and sowing discord. And Timothy's role was to be a gatekeeper. He was to know the truth so well that he was able to, as a leader, discern the lies of hell and forewarn and warn at the same time the flock of God entrusted to his care in the absence of Paul, take charge of the household of God, show them how they are to conduct themselves, why? Because the household of God is the family of God. It's the church of the living God. He's alive. He is well. He sits on his throne. He is in control. And oh, by the way, let me qualify the church. The church is the pillar and the ground or buttress of truth. Think about that for one second. The church's role on planet earth is to be a pillar that upholds truth, a buttress of truth the ground or foundation of all truth. Ours is the only message in all of the world that is able to lead to the salvaging and saving of the soul. If not the saving of the soul, what is this all about? This becomes nothing more than a social club, which is what I believe the church in the American context has become over time. And yet God is waking up his bride. He is purifying and purging his remnant. And he wants his church to rise and roar because I'll tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, righteousness amongst the people should be as bold as a lion. That's what the scriptures say. My job is very easy. I open the word of God and I let the Lord speak to his people. We were commanded in chapter 2 verse 1, to pray. Pray for all men, all types of prayer, supplication or requests, intercessions, go between, prayers generally, and then thanksgiving. How appropriate. Why do you pray? Because God has a heart to save all men. 
but also pray for a target audience, kings, verse two, and those in authority. Why pray for them? So that your life can be peaceable, quiet, godly, and dignified. Knowing that government dictates environment. We'd be foolish not to pray for those who are making decisions that impact our communities and our families. We'd be foolish not to engage and get involved in the public square, on school boards, or larger, when it affects our children. The fabric of society depends upon us understanding our role. In a statement summarizing all of last week, we are to pray as wide as all men, all men is all men, as high as all authority, all authority, and as deep as all would be saved. Why do you pray? That they would come to know Jesus. The scriptures say, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Might not be good or acceptable in the sight of man. The word says, this is good and acceptable or pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. I believe that if you believe that statement, that God desires all men to be saved, it would change the way you pray. He also has a desire that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, how does he do that? What's the basis of the message? That's verse five. First Timothy Chapter two, verse five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This verse right here is the gospel. In short, Jesus' own words, John 14, six, no one can come to the father except through him. Why? Because he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. This is basically what Paul's saying to Timothy. Hey, our message has a mediator. And that mediator is the man Christ Jesus, capital M. And he's the one that brokers a relationship between, get this, unholy, sinful man, that was once us, and a holy God. He is the bridge. He is the go-between. He is the mediator. What does a mediator do? A mediator works with both sides of the equation. A mediator is a go-between, understands the conflict as it's presented, and comes up with a solution so that, look at me, both parties can be reconciled. This man, the man, he's the God man. There's no other way to bridge a infinite gap. I've heard it said once best like this. Sin presents an infinite, endless gap between holy God and sinful man. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. Not good works, not church attendance, not donations given, not a resume of an upstanding life. Nothing can bridge that infinite gap. The only thing that can bridge an infinite gap would be an infinite presence, an eternal presence. Is that making sense? Like if there is an eternal gap between God and man, then God decided to bridge that eternal gap with an eternal presence. Job, in chapter nine, I don't wanna get lost in the details of Job, but he's at a point where he is confused over the tragedies of his life. 
and his friends come alongside of him and they're trying to get him to see that perhaps there's sin in his life. There's no way that one would be dealt such terrible cards in life. The loss of your children, the loss of your livelihood, the loss of your possessions. There must be something that God is judging you for. And Job's like, I don't think so. And he's wrestling with God. He's like, perhaps if I could have an audience with God, then I can make my case. But then he goes, even if I had an audience with God, he's too infinite and great. He's the creator. My words would fall so short. I don't deserve an audience with God. Basically what he's saying. And then in Job 9, verse 32 and 33, he says this, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him if he questions me that we should go to court together. Like I can't take God to court. And then he says in verse 33, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay hold his hand on us both. I love it, right? Is there a mediator between us? Job says there's not, but of course the, jo the book of Job has some prophecies that point to the eventual coming of the Messiah because I know my redeemer lives, Job would say, and he's pointing to that one day one would come who is the mediator who would take a hold of God's hand and take a hold of man's hands and he would do it on what we call the cross. And it truly is the go-between, the bridge, said in short, the Son of God became man so that man could become sons of God. Let me say it a little bit differently. God with man, Emmanuel, God with us, so that man, humanity, could be with God. There's no other way. This is our message. The mediator became like us. The mediator that would petition and advocate on behalf of sinful man in the Supreme Court of Heaven was Jesus, the Son of God himself, the only one who could take the sins of man upon himself. And then when, when we come to him, if you come to Christ, not religion, not church, you come to Christ, you give him all of your sinfulness, he wraps you in his righteousness. This is the message. How did he do it? Verse six who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. At the right time, in the right way, in the right place, God sent Jesus. Sent him as a ransom. Now that word is very flagrant when you understand why a ransom is necessary in the first place. Often a ransom is demanded because somebody is either taken as a hostage or they're demanding some form of payment. They have something in their possession that they're saying, if you want this back, you have to pay this price. Here's the ransom. Think for a second how Jesus became the ransom, the payment for all held hostage by sin. Everyone ensnared and held hostage by sin and death. Christ became your ransom. At the right time, in the right way, he entered your life. And if we're being honest, none of us did anything to deserve it. In fact, the word of God tells us, based on our sin nature, there was nothing redeemable about us. And yet Jesus, the son of God, the mediator between God and man, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy, his prayers need to be built upon. 
This is why Paul's passionate about sharing this message. Verse seven, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. That, that line to me is funny. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is saying, here's why I have been appointed. A preacher, one who heralds the word of righteousness. If you're taking notes, what is a preacher? One who heralds the word of righteousness. An apostle. An apostle is one who goes forth in the way of righteousness. That's a lifestyle that is in conjunction with or aligned with the words you say not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. As God sends you into the public square, you represent the message you say you, you believe. There's no disassociation. And finally, a teacher. What is a teacher? One who teaches the will of righteousness. A preacher heralds the word of righteousness. An apostle goes forth in the way of righteousness. A teacher teaches the will of righteousness. If Paul was saying something to Timothy, he's saying this, this is why young Timothy, I'm telling you to tell them to pray. I'm telling you to tell them the importance of praying. God wants to save all men. You are the only one with the message that serves as, a, as an intermediate between God and man. The only message which is why in verse eight, Paul says to Timothy, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, there it is, without wrath and dissension, better translation, without anger and argument, without anger inwardly or outwardly towards others, without argument inwardly, which was, would be doubt or intellectual dishonesty or intellectual rebellion, or argument with others. Now, let me start at the back of the verse and make my way up. You cannot pray for those you are angry with, nor can you likely be angry with those you are praying for. You might start angry towards someone or something, but the more you labor in prayer, that anger melts away. In fact, it either becomes a righteous anger where you wanna see that soul saved, you wanna see a situation redeemed, right? We're not to pray prayers of, God, would your wrath rain out on these people? He's gonna do that regardless of your prayers. That's how this story ends. And then Jesus will reign. Until then, the church is to pray for all men in all positions of authority that all would be saved. You cannot truly pray for those you're arguing with. Nor could you argue with those you're truly praying for. And I say truly, because somebody will say, well, I, I argue, but I still pray. I'm like, I want to get that eradicated from our souls. And I want gender-specific prayers to be offered by, according to the text, the men. That's what verse eight lends itself to. Did you know that? In the original language, Greek, Paul says, Tim, I want the men. This does not mean that women should not pray. Quite the contrary. Women are often the ones praying because men have forsaken their position in the context to lead in prayer. This is a gender-specific verse. And oh yeah, by the way, some of the verses to follow are also gender-specific for women. 
I want men in every place, every place being every house, every spiritual house, every house or home, and lifting holy hands. This is where it gets interesting. What is lifting holy hands? Now make no mistake, you can never disconnect lifting holy hands from actual living a holy life. Would it make sense for God to want us to lift holy hands if we're actually living an unholy life? No, but as long as we're coming together publicly, corporately, and lifting holy hands, I'm allowed to live an unholy life privately. No, you can't disconnect the two. The command for men to lift holy hands and pray is also a present continual command to live a lifestyle of lifted hands. Like as you're going to and from, from your home to the workplace, to the church, and everywhere in between, that your life would reflect a holy life from a holy heart, speaking holy words, and a posture of surrender to a holy God. That is what's being said here for the men. The text actually throws us back to some of the ancient Jewish traditions and pictures. In the Old Testament, you have plenty of verses to choose from. In the Psalms, Psalm 28, Psalm 63, Psalm 119, Psalm 134, Psalm 141, all speak of lifting hands toward either the holy sanctuary, lifting your hands in God's name, lifting your hands to his commandments, that's surrender. And, li- and get this, your prayers like incense, so lift up your hands like the evening offering. Again, I say, it's not just about the outward physical posture. It's a life from the inside out, a heart that's surrendered, a life that has been made holy by the mediator that is willing to lift holy hands. How can we then lift holy hands to God if we're not living holy lives in private? How can we lift holy hands to God if we're not standing in the gap and fighting for the cause of Christ to eliminate the works of the devil and to fight against the spiritual weapons that are aimed at our families and our children and our churches. Like, would men be willing in a posture of lifting holy hands? Not just as we worship. I want us to think beyond the three songs on a Sunday morning. Lifting holy hands, of course, equals holy hearts. I stopped and I sat in this verse. I remember kind of thinking, what does it look like to live a life of lifting holy hands? Is it just what I'm going to do on a Sunday morning in church? No. Is that part of it? Yes. Does God want to see his people reaching out to him like a heavenly father desiring to pick up his children who were redeemed? Yes. Are we all perfect now? No. Are we being perfected? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, setting us apart for his cause? Yes. Are we going to stumble and fall? Yes. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes. Are we going to take our holy hands back and put them in places and do unholy things? Probably, because we're sinners. But this pastor wants his church to say, if we do that, we're going to get ourselves out of the mud and not roll around like a pig would and be like a sheep 
and want our wool cleansed and cleaned. And that is why we come back to the word of God where the good shepherd goes, oh, my blood is what cleanses and cleans your wool. Now get back up on your feet, follow my voice, listen to my voice only. I am there to guard you, protect you, and provide for you. Thought about what is the opposite of lifting holy hands? What imagery comes to your mind when you think about the opposite of lifting holy hands? What came to my mind immediately was the symbol of a clenched fist. And when I thought about the symbol of a clenched fist, I immediately decided to look up where that symbol of a clenched fist came from. What is its origin? I wasn't surprised to find out that it meant a symbol of resistance and rebellion namely against institutions of authority across the board. And then I stopped. And before I went further, I thought about the first radical, rebellious one himself, Lucifer. And there's no chapter and verse to take you to that says he had a clenched fist. But I believe in what he accomplished by attempting to circumvent God's holy throne and overthrowing it to make himself like God, he demonstrated what it looks like to live a life of a clenched fist. And I wonder if we're honest enough, how many in this room, BC, before Christ, lived a life of having a clenched fist, waiting to retaliate, fighting back, resisting, rebelling against authority, and how that spirit behind it which is antichrist, is the tip of the spear these days to overthrow all types of authority that God has instituted. This was the origin of the clenched fist where it became popular. The pictures that you will see take you on a journey from the 17th century where it was Marxist and communistic in nature in the 1900s, World War I, the Soviet Union used that symbol to demonstrate their attempt at world domination. Marxist ideology, in case you're wondering why I bring it up often, is because the spirit behind Marxist ideology is the spirit of the Antichrist. It was once classical Marxism. It's eventually become cultural Marxism. The same exact spirit trying to get classes of people at each other's throats is the same spirit today that is trying to get colors of people at each other's throats. Interestingly, women's movements, feminism, adopted the symbol of a clenched fist in what we call feminism with the gender-specific symbol of a female. And their aim was to overthrow the patriarchy and that sounds good until you recognize and realize what they are trying to overthrow was the biblical nuclear family where the man was the head of the home. And the man as a father was supposed to provide and protect for the family. And the woman or the wife or the mother was not inferior to the man. 
They were actually supposed to work hand in hand together, like Eve came from the side of Adam. And I'll talk more about this next Sunday, but when God himself said that Eve was to be a helper suitable to the man, it was not a derogatory statement. He was not diminishing her value. In fact, that same exact title, a helper, suitable helper in Hebrew, God applied to himself on behalf of Israel. God says, I'm a helper. Woman, you are a helper. It's a high calling. So when we throw off the divine design or the creative order with a clenched fist, I am not going to take my space in my place. I'm going to overthrow it. I am woman, hear me roar. Anything man can do, I can do better. Well, you know one thing you can't do better than a man? (laughs) Being a man. And men, you know there's one thing you can't do better than a woman? Being a woman. Don't try it. It's crazy. And ultimately, that same symbol has surfaced recently. Now, some of the organizations that champion the fist, you know them, it was the Black Panthers. It was the KKK, certain white supremacy groups had that same fist, both racist in their own way. Eventually, Black Lives Matter adopted that same symbol. And if you knew anything about their charter, They were anti-God, anti-family, anti-Bible, anti-anything that the word of God stands for. Interestingly, I was talking about this in 2020 while at the same time receiving emails being called a racist myself for trying to point to biblical justice through it all. And I don't say this with any haughtiness of heart, but time has gone on. Things have been exposed. Things have been revealed. The reason I wanted you to see the Palestinian flag was not to make anything about the flag, but the symbol that is leading the charge globally right now. It's a symbol of resistance. It's a symbol of rebellion. What is ultimately being said? Are there people who are supporting the Palestinian citizens? Yes. Are they pure in their support? Yes. Are there people who are using the flag and saying they're supporting people who are actually supporting Hamas, a terroristic government? Yes. Are there people on both sides of the equation who are taking shots across the bow at each other? Yes. My goal as a pastor is to get the church to understand what does the word of God say in the midst of it all. And I will tell you what's brewing beneath the surface It's reared its ugly head and it's anti-Semitism. And I did an entire message this past Thursday. If you missed it, please watch it. My entire heart wants the church to be equipped in these days to understand what's happening. That's the only reason we're touching on these things. And it's only going to escalate. Here's your warning. It's only going to get worse. They are currently protesting globally. Yes, the Palestinian flag is at the forefront but there's a spirit behind it. And there are people who are wicked and evil who want to destroy the Jewish people and they want to wreak havoc on the world. And you know, who's always connected with the Jewish people is the Christian and the church. So that anti-Semitic spirit is eventually going to turn on the Christian that's happening. 
And all of it is in the name of a clenched fist. And all of it, if we don't take God at his word, all of it is saying, I know better than God, Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why are rulers taking counsel together? What are they pushing back against? It tells us they're trying to throw off the cords of Christ. They're trying to throw off the boundaries of the Bible. So what's the charge? Well, the charge is to understand your placement in it all. Wherever sinful man lifts his wrathful hands to tear down, we are called to lift up holy hands to raise it up. Raise it up. Christian, raise up the standard of the gospel. Isaiah tells us when the, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit lifts up a standard. That standard is truth. That standard is the gospel. That standard is the church in any given setting, globally and locally. When the church is in her rightful place and we live a life, look at me, a lifestyle, men, of lifting holy hands, Holy hands corporately, holy hands privately. I'm willing to stand in the gap. And if there be spirits with clenched fists attempting to overthrow family and overthrow the innocence of children and overthrow what God has chosen, what God has designed, then the church needs to understand how we are the intermediate in the gap, in the midst of it all, which takes us back to verse five, that our message is the only message on planet earth that serves as an intermediate between holy God and unholy man. And we need to understand the institutions God has divinely designed and appointed to bring spiritual, political, and social security and stability to society are these three institutions, all of which have found themselves highly under attack by clenched fists. Family, government, church. Don't get it twisted. These three institutions are coordinate of one another's authority. Coordinate of one another's authority, but subordinate to God's authority. Let me kind of tease that out for you. In our minds, throughout time, we've looked at these institutions, family, government, and church, and we've ultimately put government over the family and church. Or in fact, we've even separated church from government. And it's erroneous, and it's wrong, and it's flawed. The right way to look at this, God has instituted family first, government second, and then eventually the church. These three are coordinate on the same level. They are to work in tandem with one another. Each of their authorities have different roles. The family is the fabric of society. The government is supposed to administer justice, sustain good, restrict and punish evil based on moral law. The church is supposed to be the spiritual conscious of a community or a nation. Each of these brings some type of security and stability. Let me say it again. They are not a totem pole. They are tandem in role. That's how you remember it. Not a totem pole, tandem Enroll. Understanding each of these institutions and how they impact one another will help us play our part and pray our part. When fathers and husbands understand their role in family, in community, in church, you will play your part, you will pray your part, lifting holy hands. When mothers 
and wives and daughters understand their role in family, in government, in church. You will play your part. You will pray your part. How do you do that? In the words of Daniel Webster, an American statesman, senator, secretary of state, but a man who led with his Christianity, a man who believed in the family, who believed that God-given government led to the security of society, and a man who was active in his church. He said this, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. And the reason I love quotes like that, because it allows me to modify them, because it's true. Whatever makes men and women good Christians will make men and women good husbands and wives. Whatever makes men and women good Christians will make fathers and mothers good fathers and mothers. Fill in the blank. Whatever makes an individual a good, godly Christian will make them a good son or a good daughter. And when I say good, I am not speaking about good for goodness sake. I'm speaking about good for the gospel's sake. Now we're back to the introductory verses of chapter two. Why pray? So that all would be saved. Who do we pray for? Those at the top, those at the bottom. Why? Because that's pleasing in God's sight. He has a desire to save all men. What's the message? Jesus, the God-man, the go-between, the intermediate between holy God, sinful man. He bridges the gap. He gives his message to his people. The families that are built upon the biblical mandate, fathers are in their rightful place. And the enemy lifts up his clenched fist and overthrows the family and tries to get us to believe that, you know what? Women don't need men in the home. And the government, off balance, will provide that woman with whatever they can to keep the man out of the home. And it's the attempt of the enemy to throw off the nuclear structure of society. And when he can circumvent the reason government finds its place. Romans 13, as Peter would write himself, government is to sustain and honor good behavior and restrict and punish evil. If he can circumvent government and now have a day and age where people are calling good evil and calling evil good, he can throw off the fabric of society. Families are broken down. Government's a mess. And the church remains silent. No, if the power of the gospel is not felt throughout the length and breadth of the land, anarchy and misrule, degradation and misery, corruption and darkness will reign without mitigation or end. Daniel Webster. Without mitigation? Without end? Yeah, it's a vacuum. Only the power of the gospel only the mediator between God and man. Only he is the architect of the family. Only he is to be the administrator of government. Only he is to be the authority of the church. Are you saying that we should be a theocracy? No. That will happen one day when Jesus returns. In the meantime, I'm saying that every family made up of individuals who take God at his word, will make an impact on society until he calls us home. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that out of Psalm 127. We're not gonna teach Psalm 127. I was fascinated at the context of Psalm 127. The reason I was fascinated is because it begins with the house, Psalm 127, it ends in the gates. Interesting. Psalm 127 begins with building a family. It ends with battling an enemy. And the reason why the word gate is so interesting is because the word gate in biblical society 
was the place where the elders or the leaders would gather and make decisions that would impact community. It was the most important place for different justice and administrative rule to go out, which is why Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Ecclesia was a Greco-Roman word. Everybody understood it except for the Jews. The Jews understood synagogue. The Jews understood temple. Jesus said, I want you to understand ecclesia because the church is the called out people in the public space who take God at his word. Where? In the gates. And when the church is in the gates, she is involved in the public square. And that is why Jesus said, not even the gates of Hades can prevail. But when we're not in the gates, the gates of Hades occupy that space with clenched fists following the lead of Lucifer, overthrowing government, overthrowing family, and eventually attempting to overthrow the people of God. That's what you are witnessing in these days. Psalm 127, verse one and two, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, the bread of strife, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Translation, you wanna build a house? You must build it upon Jesus. You wanna guard a city or a school board? You must be vigilant and build it upon Jesus. You wanna be productive in society, waking up early, staying up late. If it lacks Jesus Christ, that activity is in vain. Activity without Christ is never productivity and is closer akin to negativity. How many of us are exhausted from living our own way, trying to accomplish our own things, all of which coming up Short, our own toiling, our own building, our own battling are in vain. Our efforts are exhausting, our resources depleting. We might as well join the causes with clenched fists because that is basically what our lives reflect when we don't submit to the authority of God's word. So how do we lift up holy hands, you ask? How do we both pray our part and play our part? It's the rest of the Psalm. Verses three to five, you won't see them on the screen. It talks about children being a heritage of the Lord, a fruit of the womb of reward. It then says this imagery, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. I'm like, wow, an arrow? Am I supposed to launch them into the world? No, I'm supposed to sharpen them in the midst of a generation that is very dull and very ignorant. You're watching that unfold on liberal university, coming out in droves with clenched fists, which is ironic because the clenched fist is not only destructive to society, it's self-destructive. No, it then says like, arrows in the hands, a holy hand, shaping and sharpening, here's the result. A man has a quiver full of them. He's blessed. And then it says, they will not be ashamed, but will contend with their enemies in the gate. Translation, there's coming a day where our children, the next generation, will replace us in the fight. Each of us are our own types of arrows in God's hand. He chooses to shoot us for the cause of righteousness. 
while at the same time, we're supposed to raise up the next generation. When we raise them up and we sharpen them to understand who they are in Christ, I'll age myself out and Lord willing, replace myself with Ezekiel, my son, so that he can then take my place in the gates and contend with the enemy. If we raise up a generation that does not take the gates, there's a reason why the enemy is setting up their thrones in our gates. It's self-explanatory. What we're watching is the time of the Moses and Joshua dynamic. What? Moses was tasked to lead God's people. I'm certain that there was a different vitality and a different energy to Moses in the beginning of his ministry. I'm certain he needed a different type of energy when he went before the Pharaoh. I'm also certain that as he began to lead the people in the wilderness, he would locate and identify a Joshua, a younger one. And it was Joshua in the battlefield who was fighting on the battlefront. But the Joshuas need the Moses. And you know where Moses was in Exodus 17? Moses was on the mountain. You know what he was doing on the mountain? Raising his holy hands, lifting up the, the rod of God. And it tells us in Exodus 17, 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. Interestingly, when he got tired and let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. The Amalekites were the mortal enemy of the Jews, the Israelites. They were known for capturing their women, their children, and their elderly at the rear. And at this battle scene, Joshua was tasked to fight them on the school board, at the local level, in community. And Moses was tasked, advanced in age, to intercede with holy hands. And I'm saying some of us in this room need to intercede on behalf of our grandchildren and our children. Some of us need to intercede on behalf of the young leaders in this church. Some of us need to get in the game and our youthfulness should be on the front lines because there's this dynamic that is occurring before our very eyes. There's clenched fists that are trying to overthrow and God is looking for holy hands to raise it up. Now, interestingly, when you read the text, Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 to 16, it tells us that, of course, Moses got tired. They put a stone underneath him. And when his hands got heavy, because they will get heavy, he had an Aaron and a Hur holding his hands up. That tells me it's a community affair. That when certain hands being lifted to heaven are getting weary and tired, Brothers and sisters need to come alongside of each other and say, I got your back and I'm gonna hold your hand up. And that's what a church is built upon. Get this, Exodus, I'm almost done. Chapter 17, I'm excited, verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name the Lord is my banner. Translation, Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Translation, the Lord is looking for warriors to be covered in prayer. And he's looking for prayer warriors to cover in prayer. And nobody is left out of that equation. Lifting up holy hands is the only weapon to combat clenched fists. I guess that's, I could have said that in the beginning and we could have went home. <laughs> Lifting up holy hands 
is the only weapon to combat clenched fists. Final thought and why it's important. While unholy forces are raising clenched fists in rebellion, and that's happening, we are commissioned to lift up holy hands for redemption. What is this all about? Why do we pray? Why do we carry forth a message of redemption? So that God can save as many as he wills. I say, dear church, this is your charge. And then a few more verses and then we'll be done. Second, or First Timothy chapter two, verses nine to 12. In like manner also that the woman, women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not without braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Well, would you look at that? There goes our time for this morning. <laughs> Lord willing, we'll be back next Sunday. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Prayers appreciated for this week of studying. Since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it by God's grace. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, We praise you, God. We praise you for who you are, what you're doing in, in our midst, what you're doing around the world. We look to you for our hope, for our salvation, for our security, for our stability. Make us the men and women, the boys and girls, in conformity to your image, for your cause. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>